Uh, so yeah, 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. This is the word of God. Let's pray together, friends. Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing privilege to be uh, here this weekend. Help us to have your mind, to think your thoughts after you. Thank you that we're able to spend some decent time away and to stop uh, having the world impacting us at every moment and every billboard and every turn. And as we listen to your word and think about that, please help us to drink it deep, deep, deep into our souls. We ask for your help to do this, Father, so that we might live in accordance with your will and the world... uh, Your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our friends, we've been um, answering some questions and looking at the topic um, over the time that we've been together of how to change the world under God. Uh, Yesterday, we looked at who changes the world, and we realised it was disciples of Christ. And then secondly, we looked at how to change the world. How do those disciples of Christ change the world? And the way they change the world is by making others what they themselves are disciples of Christ it's about making something but tonight what I want to do is look with you at what does this look like in real life how does it work out on the ground because we're all going to jump in a car tomorrow and we're going to go back to either Gawler or Mount Gambia or Glenelg or somewhere like that and what are we going to do well can I suggest you do two things one is have a particular mindset And two, have a crack. Now, before we talk about having a crack, having a go at it, um, I want to look at what mindset or ethos you need to have. The disciple-making mindset is one of spiritual parenthood. So if you look at the scriptures and you look at the paradigm for ministry training or disciple-making in the Scriptures, it is spiritual parenthood. I don't know whether you picked that up in the reading from 1 Corinthians 4 that we had a second ago, but that is the paradigm, that's the mindset, that's the ethos that I want you to have when you walk away because it's the Scriptures mindset for ministry training, for disciple-making. It isn't teacher-student, it isn't sergeant and uh, someone of a lower rank like a private. It, it isn't a coach and an athlete. It's a spiritual parent. Now, why do I say that? Well, um, you see it in the way Jesus operated in his public ministry. Please look at uh, John chapter 13 with me, would you please? John chapter 13. This is that passage just before John 14 where he's about to leave. It's a pretty tense moment. John chapter 13. 
around about 31. John 13, 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. The way Jesus thinks about his relationship with his disciples is that they are his children. He made them as disciples. Therefore, he is their father in Christ. Um, You see also Jesus do what a father does in that he invests deeply in a few. Jesus invested deeply in the 12 and even more deeply in Peter, James and John. Just as a father invests deeply in his own kids in a way that he doesn't invest time in the children or the people who are in another family. And it's this spiritual parenthood that Paul is talking about when he mentions in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he says to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. When he says the imitation, he's not saying just imitate the body of teaching that Jesus has passed on, but imitate me as I imitate Jesus and his way of life. And then when Paul does that, Paul operates in the same way as Jesus. He gets alongside those who he trains, like Timothy. And what does he call Timothy? He calls Timothy my beloved son at the beginning of 2 Timothy. What does he do for Timothy? If you follow their relationship through the the pastoral letters, you see that he takes him on board in Lystra. He trains him and then he sends him out. So... Um, There's a bit of a motto you often hear around the place. Has anyone ever heard this before? See one, do one, teach one. Has anyone ever heard that? It's a medical term, isn't it? It's frightening as a patient. Because do you mean the person who's doing this one on me has only seen one? And what is it? See, they've done one and now they're teaching someone else. But it's a beautiful phrase as well. It's that idea of passing on. So what does Paul say to Timothy in his final letter of his life in 2 Timothy 2 he says be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who are able to teach others Paul's saying see one do one teach one pass it on that one verse has four generations in it It has four generations of family members Paul Timothy reliable people and others. <clears throat> There's a bloke on um, the MTS board and his name is Murray Norman. He's about 40 years old. He's an entrepreneur, a real networker. Anyway, I had to uh, drop something around at his house one day and I knocked on the door and his son, Tom, opened the door. Tom's 12 years old, puts his hand out. Hello, Mr. Farlett. Shakes my hand. Say, good day, Tom. How are you? Very well, thank you, Mr. Farlett. What have you been up to, Tom? Mm, Stuff. What stuff? Well, uh, actually, now that you mention it, he pulls out a business card. He said, I've just created a new business card for my new business. So I grab it off him and I say, Norman Industries, Tom Norman. There's no phone number because he's not old enough to have one. (laughs) And and anyway, I said to him, Tom, um, what sort of services do you provide? And before it even got the last word out, he said, well, what is it that you need done, Mr. Farlett? 
And I thought, oh my goodness, this bloke is a chip off the old block. He's been watching his old man, he's been doing what his old man says, and now he's doing it himself. It's awesome. See one, do one, teach one. And also parenthood is preparation for separation. And when you watch Paul and Timothy in their relationship, that's indeed how it operates. Please look at Philippians 2 with me, please. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me Paul's trained him up Paul's got him ready it's preparation for separation and here in Philippians is one of the examples where Paul sends him as though sending himself because he's fully trained and equipped. Spiritual parenthood is preparation for separation. I grew up in a family of seven kids, a little bit like Jesus' family. In fact, the same gender balance too. Five boys, two girls. You'll see that in Mark chapter 6. Um, I was number four. And uh, in our family of seven, it was very clear, well, we knew right from the day we were born that we'd be leaving home at 18. So once you uh, went on to further study or got a job, you had to leave home. That was just the deal. And it was interesting how it changed everything. I remember being 10 years old and walking up to my mother and saying to her, Mum, could you please iron a school shirt for me? And my twin brother walked past and goes, Can't you iron a shirt yet, you sissy? Well, it just got stuck into me. I'll never forget it. He was 10 years old, that was 1980, and it was interesting how the thought of actually leaving home at 18 had massive effect, effects on the way we lived in the lead-up to that time. Eight years out, I was thinking to myself, I need to learn how to iron a shirt, because I'll be gone soon. That's precisely how spiritual parenthood should operate. As you help someone to become a disciple and teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded, you must always have in mind that they are going to leave you and make their own disciples and start their own spiritual family and you have to prepare them for that. When 1 Corinthians 4 was read at the beginning, I, I wonder if you noticed the plethora of spiritual parenthood phrases or words used. There's two people I ring on Father's Day. One of them is Malcolm, my biological father, and the other one is Reese, who is my father in Christ. I ring him and thank him for giving me birth in the power of the Spirit, just as I thank my own father for giving me birth. Why don't you have a look at um, 1 Corinthians 4, that reading, 1 Corinthians 4, 
14 to 17, and with the person next to you, work out how many references are made to spiritual parenthood or how many spiritual parenthood terms are used in these four verses. Take a moment to do that with the person next to you. How many did you come up with? Does anyone want to have a punt? Four? Five? Six? Maybe six. Tell me why maybe? Admonish. Admonish, ooh. Yeah? There's a lot there, isn't there? I don't know whether you've noticed this stuff before, but it was when I read the book The Trellis and the Vine, which was written by Tony Payne and Cole Marshall, that they brought this to my attention, that when you realise that disciple-making is about spiritual parenthood and you look in the scriptures, looking for it from there on, it is everywhere. From our Father is our, God is our Heavenly Father, through to how it is that you relate to people you make as your disciples. So what's the mindset required? Well, it's spiritual parenthood. And I mentioned to you that as we head off from here, there are two things I want you to have. I want you to have a a mindset of spiritual parenthood. But the second thing I want you to do is I want you to have a crack. That's a technical term, meaning have a go, try and do this yourself. Um, And I thought thought it'd be really good if you have a disciple-making goal But sometimes when we go to conferences, we spend all this time talking about ought-tos and never talk about how-tos, that I want to devote some time now with an overhead to talk to you about how my wife and I have a crack at making disciples. Now, I know the, uh, the size of the text isn't massive, probably from about halfway you can't read it, but there's another one up the back. Now, what I want to show you first, and it's sort of connected to the outline you've got there, is that when I think about disciple-making, I have a pipeline in my head. I have a curriculum, I have things that I want to teach people. And you can see them along the way there. But before we get to that, I want you to see this prayerful goal at the top. My wife Emma and I realised in in 2009 that we weren't giving enough attention to disciple-making. Remember I drew that picture on the board of the circle and disciple-making circle, ours was way too small. So we decided in January 2010 that we'd prayerfully and dependently upon God, knowing that he brings the fruit, seek to win 10 people for Christ in two years, in 2010 and 2011. We're now in the, at the end of the second two years, 2012, 2013, and on our third one. So that's the goal we set. So that's up there at the top. And what we do and how we go about it is, is along this line here. So what, what we do is we have the idea or the, the intention that we're, we're friends with people. You love people that you're in contact with who are not yet Christians. And there's a whole stack of things we do to hang out with people so that we get to know them and relate to them with some intentionality. So you notice there, that's barbecue cubed. So what we do is there's three couples at church and what we each try and do, or the three couples try and do with another family that we're wanting to get to know, is that we have that family over at one of our houses with the other two so that there's four families together and then the same thing happens at another house, get the four families together 
and another barbecue happens at another house where you get the, all the four families together, that takes about six months. But over that six-month period, the wives all know the wives, the dads all know the kids and everyone, and these people have lots of friends in a very natural way just over a barbecue. Takes a lot of time. But then what happens is when we run a Life of Jesus course, which is a DVD-based course, which John Dixon has, uh, has authored, which is a fantastic course because it assumes that people do not believe... That was sort of good without the lights, or, or can't you see me? That... Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Why would you want to see me? I reckon you can kill them. I don't... Well, it's up to you. you. You decide. Somebody's told you. You don't know who to obey, do you? <laughs> you want to vote? <laughs> hey. And so what this course is here is um, it's, a, it's a course that assumes people do not think the Bible is historically reliable and, and assumes that people do not think Jesus is a historical figure as mentioned in the Bible. So that's the first course we run and it works really well. Um, but what we do is after having the barbecue cubed thing and we you know, do that and then invite other people to the Life of Jesus course, the invitation goes something like this. G'day Gazza, Benny here, how you going? Yeah, good mate. Um, I just wanted to ring you Gazza because we're running this thing called the Life of Jesus course next Tuesday. Come along, beers, DVD, uh, look at the life of Jesus, maybe some cheese as well. Do you want to come along? Yeah, oh, mate, not really my, you know, not really my. Oh, hang on a second, we've got a question. Is the barbecue happening in your, at your house or in the church? Is the barbecue, I'll repeat the question, is the barbecue happening in my house or in the church? No, it's not happening in the church building. It's happening in houses. Thank you. And what I do, I have the yak and nah, not really my gig, mate. Oh, really? It's over at Paney's house. Oh, it's at Paney's house. Is Paney going to be there? Yeah, Paney will be there. Dougie's going to be there too. Fair dinkum. Yeah, and Newey also. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I might come. And he comes. And it's a six-week course. And then what he does is he, he comes along and what we do is we arrange to have the course running in a house which the other Bible study group runs in as well. So when you walk in, there's 20 or 30 blokes and we're all having beers and coffee or whatever. And, and then somebody blows the whistle and says, OK, it's time for us to all go off to our groups. And the Bible study group heads off into one room and the Life of Jesus group heads off into the other room. Guess what happens in the half hour? They get to know another 15 or 20 blokes who are believers. And so we do the Life of Jesus course and then people don't become Christians. The homework for the Life of Jesus course is read the Gospel of Luke. But they don't become Christians because what happens in the Life of Jesus course is they finally believe that the Bible is historical and that Jesus is a real dude of history. And that's the biggest thing it achieves. And then we invite them in the following term to come to Christianity Explored. That's in term two, that's in term three. Men my age don't do anything in term one or four, it's pandemonium. So we've given up on that. We get a nine out of ten 
switchover rate from the life of Jesus to Christianity Explored. But when they do Christianity Explored with Rico Tice, where Mark is taught within the DVD and then they read a lot of Mark and actually do their homework, then at the end of Christianity Explored, we found that's when they become Christians. It's very, very exciting. Now remember, the barbecue wasn't just a bait and switch thing. We keep having barbecues all the way along. Because that would be dumb, wouldn't it? You don't do bait and switch, that's not loving. They're your mates. You love them, whether they come to the course or not. We also, um, I do a thing, my kids go to a Christian school, so I went to the principal and I said, can I run some Bible studies for dads to teach them what, to help them to understand what the school teaches their kids about God? The principal said, it's one of my major KPIs, I haven't done anything on it, I'd love you to do that. So I started running them. And then we've got blokes bike riding, 6.30am on a Saturday. We just invite any bloke, do you want to come riding? You look down at their gut, then look back up at them, do you want to come riding? <laughs> and they do that thing like on that milk ad, you know. The... And, um, and they come and we have two groups, forgive my French, but we have the fat bastards. They ride on mountain bikes and they do a shorter track and then there's the fit bastards. They go on a big, a big longer ride and we all end up at the same coffee shop. And most weeks... You're there for coffee longer than you went bike riding. <laughs> now, in amongst all this, continuing along here is community groups, midweek Bible studies. The reason half of this is happening here is because in 2009, we got the Bible study together and said, we're just a bunch of people who feed on the Word of God and we're so fat and morbidly obese on the Word of God, we can't get out the door. How about we stop this? How about we turn ourselves into an evangelistic platoon? So that when you come to Bible study, it's basic training in order to fight midweek. That changed everything. And then, of course, every second year we do a Vanuatu trip, which I mentioned to you. We go to uh, Vanuatu and build stuff over there, but we invite our non-Christian mates to come. We don't go to evangelise the Nevans, because more of them are Christians than... about 50 times more of them are Christians than Australians. We go to evangelise our non-Christian mates who come and spend... 24-7 with us for eight or nine days. So that's what happens. And then when someone becomes a Christian, I do two ways to live with them. Teach them to how to communicate the gospel to others because they're a new Christian and they need to be ready to do that. Then just for starters, if someone becomes a Christian, they need to know how to follow them up. So I teach them how to follow someone up before someone needs to be followed up. Then we do blueprint which is basic Christian doctrine and then you get to the point where you teach them to run a Bible study so that then they can do all this themselves with their own evangelistic platoon. Now forgive me for indulging but I think one of our big problems is we never talk about the how-tos. This is how Emma and I go about it. Now actually this is sort of a bit more the, the Ben side of things. Emma does a whole stack of stuff that it's just too complicated to put up there. <laughs> it's just different. So that's how we go about it. Now, there's a, there's a couple of things I want you to notice about this. Notice down here, three T's. Three T's. If you want to make disciples, you've got to teach people the gospel. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? Goodliness is not the same as godliness. The second thing is, it takes time. And the third thing is, if you're not doing it in a team with a group of other people, 
You'll never do it. Now, I don't know what you think when you look at this up here. Do you think to yourself, holy cow, that is just a mess. Because if you do think that when you look at that, congratulations, you're absolutely normal, because it is a mess. And I tell you what, when someone becomes a Christian, the mess just gets worse. So Gary, one of the guys I just mentioned a minute ago who I invited to the life of Jesus, his wife Jacinta became a Christian. Gary was irate about six weeks after she became a Christian. Why? Well, Gary articulated it like this. When she became a Christian, I felt like she was having an affair with another man and his name's Jesus. Now, she's giving attention to someone other than him now which is entirely right and true and good, but that's really different for him. It's a mess. And I could tell you eight or nine other really, really messy stories, but if you want to be a disciple maker, if you want to be a spiritual parent, if you want to be somebody who changes the world, you are about to enter in, and you probably already know this, a life of mess. It is hard. Another thing I want you to notice about this is this actually doesn't have anything to do with my church. You can probably turn the lights on now, I reckon. I mean, I've been in a church that's changed leaders a fair bit. They've never been against what we're doing, but we didn't go to the parish council and say, can we please do this? No, I'm a man. I'm a Christian, and Jesus says, go and make disciples. He didn't say, go and make disciples subject to approval by the governing body in the congregation that you're a part of. He said, just go and make disciples. So can I encourage you, don't wait for the authorities to give you approval or give you a poke or a prod. You're not going to stand there on the final day and the Lord say to you, oh, okay, you didn't make disciples because it hadn't been approved. That's okay. It doesn't work like that. It's a mess. And the other thing you'll notice is... Um, my 5pm congregation is not mentioned there because one of the really big problems that we've tried to nut out is when non-Christian blokes become Christians, how do you deal with them and church buildings? Now this church building is not too bad. It's got weird chairs, but it doesn't have weird windows. Well, not really weird ones. But our church... We don't let anyone come near the 5pm church gathering that we all go to until they've been a Christian for three semesters, until they're firmly established in the faith. Because when they walk in, it's a weird building with weird chairs and weird windows. And even though they've heard the gospel of grace, the form of everything communicates a gospel of works. They're worried about what they'll dress up in. They're worried about what everyone's doing. They think they've got a... Do you understand the problem? And people at the front of church keep saying stuff like, um, non-Christians are welcome to come to this event and so if you bring your mate along who's not... It's weird. So friends, I wanted to show you that because that's the curriculum or the training pipeline. Uh, second thing here, 2.2 on your outline is competency. One of the things we want to do as we make disciples is make them competent to do things. Please don't teach people about evangelism. Teach people to do evangelism. 
and coaching. Just as Reese Bazant was beside me every step of the way as I matured as a Christian, you must be beside people every step of the way. If you have children and they don't know how to do something, if you're there next to them, leading them, guiding them, they're likely to succeed. If you just hands off, let them go, they'll fail. It's a side-by-side, all-the-way deal. Now, you might be sitting here um, and, you know, have a look at that diagram and be asking yourself, but who on earth would I work with? Who on earth can I approach to share the gospel with or hope to make a disciple? Well, in answer to that question, what I've done is chucked a sheet of paper on your chair, which hopefully you've received. This is a complete rip-off. Well, I've just copied down what a bloke called Paddy Ben, who works at Sydney Uni AFES, Uh, told me one day when we were waiting at a bus stop, I thought, that's gold, I've got to write that down. And that's just how it works. You don't think that you've got people to share the gospel with? Well, perhaps think about geography. Think about stage of life. Think about ethnicity. Does anyone here fluently speak another language apart from English? Hand up. Hi. Wow, what an awesome evangelistic tool. And then hobbies. What things are you into? And then there's different ways of communicating the gospel, literary or social media, personal one-to-one group, and then public meetings. So sit down with that and maybe fill in two boxes with a friend after this session and work out, oh, what's something that I could do with some friends from that network? Some of my friends, you've sort of, uh, you've cashed in all your invitation tickets to um, a public event. I just make sure they're friends on Facebook and just drip feed something to all my friends on Facebook knowing that they'll probably see it. There's other ways to keep contact with people and keep going. Friends, as you go out, I want you to have a mindset and I want you to have a crack. And if you're sitting here and you're under 30 and you're waiting to be given permission by somebody, it's never going to happen. If you live in South Australia and you're sub-30, then can I give you a challenge? Take responsibility for reaching your generation with the gospel. Don't wait for fat 44-year-olds to give you permission because just get on with it. Just have a crack. Just do it. Eyeball your peers and say, why don't we do this thing? Let's do this together. Let's take care of our generation. Have a crack. Now, friends, before we finish up, um, I've got a couple of dangerous myths there. They seem a tiny bit redundant in some ways, but I'll explain them to you because you'll probably be confused. There's a guy called John Chapman who was an evangelist. Has anyone here heard of John Chapman? Put your hand up if you've heard of John Chapman. John Chapman used to talk like this. He talked like Wally Wolpamua, which was a chimpanzee. But he used to say, he was interviewed not long before he died by a guy called Philip Jensen. And Philip Jensen said to him, is there anything about Christianity in Australia that you've noticed in the last 40 years that concerns you and he said yes there's I won't do the accent he said yeah one of the big changes I've noticed is that 40 years ago when we ran the annual church camp 
It used to be an evangelistic event where we'd preach the gospel and invite all our non-Christian friends in the hope that they'd become disciples of Christ, that they'd see Christian community operating, they'd come along and they'd believe. Now what are Christian camps all over Australia? It's the holy huddle getting together to feed on the word of God and to get bigger, like heavier, I mean. Interesting, isn't it? I didn't even realise that that had happened. See that slight shift in Christianity? Where to be disciple makers, and in the past, disciple making, one of the key strategies was the annual church camp. But then someone probably added, well, let's just not do that this year. And then the trajectory just changed. Another thing is, um, another dangerous myth, actually it's written correctly here, that's not a myth, that's actually good. Um, but your pastor is to be a captain coach, not a Formula One driver. One of the uh, issues that we have in Christianity is that too many pastors are Formula One drivers. They sit in the cockpit of the car, the congregation fills up their tyres with air and fills up their petrol tank with fuel and then waves as they head off out of the pits to do ministry. That's not the way it should be. They need to be captain coaches They need to be on the field and be able to make disciples themselves and help their fellow team members to get better at disciple making as well. So I guess this is a word to you who are Christian leaders out there. If you're not a captain coach, you need to start being one. Not a Formula One driver. Friends, we've talked about... um, how to change the world under God. We've talked about who changes the world, it's disciples of Christ. How to change the world by making disciples and how to grow change agents. Growing change agents requires us to have the mindset of being spiritual parents. Why do we do all this? Why are we talking about all this stuff? We're talking about all this stuff because heaven will be like an airport. I love airports. I was at an airport recently picking up a guy from America and he got in, well, he got out of customs about an hour and a half late, so I was there for about two and a half hours. But I love airports. Do you know why? Because airports have heaps of introductions and heaps of reunions. Family members who get together. People who knew one another, family members and someone comes down the ramp and the kids run up and they hug, they're reintroduced together. When we make disciples and someone dies, we know them already, we will see them again in glory and it'll be like like an airport as we reunite with them in heaven. It's going to be awesome. But you know what's even better? Is when you see Nonna come down the ramp and she has never seen her kid's kid the little bambino, and they walk up and she sees the one who was given life by the one she gave life to and she holds it for the first time. It's the most beautiful thing. That's what heaven will be like. I don't know the guy who was a teacher at Knox High School in the southeast of Melbourne who taught Reese Bazant the gospel. He's my grandfather in the faith and I can't wait to meet him. But do you know what's even better? I'm going to meet people who are those that 
Under God's grace, I helped, or God used me to help them become Christians, and they're going to help other people who became Christians, and then I'm going to meet my grandkids in the faith when we get to the airport of heaven. That's what it's all about, glorifying the king, because he's the one who rules forever, and he paid for all our sin on the cross, and not only that, welcomed us into the table of fellowship for eternity to forever to enjoy God's love. That's what we're doing this for. Will you please, please be a mature disciple and make disciples and be a spiritual parent so that you can say what Paul says in Philippians 4, that who is my joy and who is my crown? You, my spiritual family in heaven, you are my joy. You are my crown. Doesn't that make the four Ps just seem just so pitiful? What is your joy and crown? That's what I'm open for. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd use us to help others to believe in Jesus. Please help us to have a go. And we've all got fears and we've all got anxieties and hesitations and concerns. But we pray, Father, that we'd remember what Jesus said, that he's with us to the very end of the age. Please, Father, help us not to just know that, but to trust it and step forward and have a go. We plead this in Jesus' name. We plead your help, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.